Chapter 5, Part 1 of Tales of a Vanishing River. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch. Tales of a Vanishing River by Earl H. Reed. Tipton Posey's Store. The unpretentious building stood just back from the road, near the end of Bundy's Bridge. It was a lonely-looking structure, for there were no near neighbors. Its sustenance was drawn from a thinly populated region, but its location made it easy of access from many miles around. The winding thoroughfare that led over the decrepit bridge was an ancient Indian trail that, like the other cherished possessions of the red man, had been merged into the economies of his white brothers. The plashing waters of the river lulled the ear with gentle tumult. The sides, softly under the old bridge, rippled against the decayed abutments with a dirge-like rhythm and spread out in little swirls and scrolls over the tapering sandbar below. During the hot summer forenoons, barefooted boys in fragmentary costume appeared on the structure from unknown sources. They rested long cane fish poles along the side rails and watched for the corks to bob that floated on the lazy current. They soon disrobed and remained naked the rest of the day, making frequent trips into the river, where they wallowed along the muddy margin and splashed in the shallow water. The agile sunburned bodies and the shouts of the noisy, happy crew gave a touch of vibrant life and human interest to the melancholy old bridge. When night came, the scant raiment was gathered up, and the slender strings of small bullheads and sunfish, a meager spoil if judged from a material standpoint, were carried proudly away on the dusty road. Emperors, and particularly one of them, might well envy their innocence and happiness as they faded away into the twilight. Lofty elms, big sycamores and basswoods interlaced with wild grapevines shaded the approach to the bridge and fringed the gently sloping banks of the river. The store was a remnant of the past, when it was built about sixty years ago, the location seemed to offer alluring prospects. While the expected town did not materialize in the vicinity of the bridge, the store had done a thriving business before the railroads crossed the river country and after the old trail was graded. Few of the frequent travelers along the road had failed to stop and contribute more or less to its prosperity. The trappers from up and down the river sold their pelts and obtained supplies there, some of which consisted of very raw-edged liquor that they often claimed ate holes in their stockings. Much of it had never enjoyed the society of a revenue stamp, but as stamps affected neither the flavor nor the hitting quality of the goods, nobody ever inquired into these things. The merciless years changed the fortunes of the place, and it was now in an atmosphere of decay. It was a gray, unpainted two-story affair with a wooden awning over a broad platform in front, along the outer edge of which hung a small, squeaky sign, Tipton Posey, General Merchandise. 
It was the general loafing place of the old muskrat trappers and pot hunters, known as river rats, and old settlers, whose principal asset was spare time. But everybody for miles around came occasionally to keep track of what's going on and to exchange the gossip of the river country. Posey, the jovial and philosophic proprietor who lived upstairs, was a sympathetic member of the motley gatherings. He was utilized in countless ways. He acted as stakeholder and referee when bets were made on disputed matters of fact, delivered verbal messages, and always had the latest news. He was a good-natured, ruddy-faced old fellow, with an eccentric mustache that curled in at one corner of his mouth and seemed to be trying to make its escape on the other side. He seldom wore a hat, and his gray hair stood up like a flare over his high forehead. The confused stock of goods included a little of everything that any reasonable human being would want to buy, and lots of things that nobody could ever have any sane use for. Those who were unreasonable could always get what they wanted by waiting a week or two, for Tip declared that he would draw upon the resources of the civilized world through the mails, if necessary, to accommodate his customers. Posey was reliable in everything except regular attendance. He opened stores spasmodically in the morning and closed it whenever there was nobody round at night. When his lifelong friend Bill Stiles was unavailable as a substitute guardian, he often locked up and left a notice on the door indicating when he would return. I once found one reading, Gone off, back Monday. Uh, it was Wednesday, <laughs> and it had been there since Saturday. Various lead-pencil comments had been inscribed on the misleading notice by facetious visitors. Among them, liar. What Monday? Sober up. Stranger called to buy a hundred dollars worth of goods and found nobody home. The sheriff has been here looking for you twice. And several other notations calculated to annoy the delinquent. Sometimes the notice would simply read, Gone off, which, in connection with the fact that the door was locked, was convincing to the most obtuse observer. Tip usually found a fringe of patient customers and assorted loiterers sitting along the edge of the platform, discussing the burning questions of the day when he returned. During the shooting seasons, he spent much time on the marsh down the river. Orders were stuck under the door, and during his brief and uncertain visits to the store, he filled them and left the goods in a locked wooden box in the rear, to which a few favored customers had duplicate keys. While Tip's affairs were not conducted on strictly commercial principles, he had no competition, and eventually did all the business there was to be done. I get all the money they got, and nobody could do more than that if they was here all the time, he remarked, as he laid his gun and a bunch of bloody ducks on the platform and unlocked the door late one night after several days' absence. I got them all trained now, and they'd be spoiled if I took to being here regular. There were two spare rooms over the store that were reached by a stairway on the outside of the building. 
I usually occupied one of them whenever I visited that part of the river. Bill Stiles slept in the other when he thought it was too dark for him to go home, or he was not in a condition to make the attempt. It was in use most of the time. Bill was the genius loci, and gave it a rich and mellow character which it would have been difficult for Posey to sustain alone. He was a grizzled veteran of the marshes. For many years he had lived in a tumble-down shack on Huckleberry Island. He trapped muskrats and mink over a wide area in the river, and shot ducks and geese for the market in the spring and fall. When the fur harvest began to fail, and the game laws became oppressive, he concluded that he was getting too old to work, and was too much alone in the world. He moved up the river and built a new shack on Watermelon Bend, which was within easy walking distance from the store, where he could usually find plenty of congenial company when he wanted it. Here he had become a fixture. Out of the ample fund of his experience, flavored and garnished by the rich and inexhaustible fertility of an imagination that at times was almost uncanny, had come tales of early life on the river in marshes that had enthralled the loiterers at the store. They shared the shade of the awning with him during the hot summer days, and surrounded the big-bellied wood stove in the dingy interior during the winter days and evenings, when they was nothing doing anywhere else in the region, and listened with rapt attention to his reminiscences. Any expression of incredulity met with a crushing rebuke. I didn't notice that you was there at the time, he would remark with asperity. If you wasn't, that'll be all from you. The muskrat colonies still left along the river and out on the marshy areas were often drawn upon by adventurous youngsters, solely for the purpose of seeing Bill skin them. Clusters of the unfortunates were brought by their tails and laid on the store platform. The old man would look the crowd over patronizingly, take his ripper from his pocket, and with a few dexterous strokes perform feats of pelt surgery that made the tyros gasp with admiration. I scunned 648 rats once in five hours that I'd caught on Muckshaw Lake the night before was Bill's invariable remark after he had finished his gruesome performance. The adulation of these small audience was the glow that eliminated his declining days. When I first met the old man years ago, he was engaged in writing his autobiography, and at last accounts he was still at it. His shack and the little room over the store had gradually become literary temples, his complicated manuscripts and notes were kept in an old black satchel of once shiny oilcloth that he called his war bag. On its side was the roughly lettered inscription, Historic Chronicles, Styles. He carried it back and forth between his abodes with much solicitude. During the many evenings I spent with him, he would frequently extract its contents and read aloud in the dim light of a kerosene lamp. He often paused and looked over the rims of his spectacles, with animation in his gray eyes, when he came to passages that he deemed of special importance. 
the masses of foolscap contained records that were only intelligible to the writer. His grammar and spelling were hopelessly bad. His methods of compilation were baffling, and his penmanship was mystic, but his collection of facts and near facts was prodigious. He took long reflective rests between the periods of active composition. They were deathless chronicles in the sense that they seemed to be without end, and they appeared to become more and more deathless as he proceeded. The first two or three hundred pages were what Bill called a backfire chapter. It began with the creative dawn and was a general historical resume down to the time of his appearance on earth. It skipped lightly over the great events that loom like mountain peaks in the world's history and tower away into the receding centuries. When he came to the deluge, he got lost among Noah's animals for a while and floundered hopelessly for adjectives. It was impossible to enumerate and describe all of them, but he did the best he could. Through a maze of wars and falling empires, he got Columbus to America. The Republic was established, and civilization finally flowered with the birth of Bill Stiles, A.D. 1836. From the dawn of time to the rocking of Bill's cradle was a far cry, but his annals included what he considered the essential features of that dark period. In addition to a vast amount of matter of purely personal interest, the work was designed to accurately record the happenings in the river country during Bill's lifetime. Much of his material was collected at the store. The year that Bundy's Bridge was built and the ferry ceased operations was shrouded in historic gloom. Five times the year had been changed in the Chronicles, for five eminent authorities differed as to the date, and each of them had at one time or another succeeded in impressing Bill. He seemed confident of all his other facts. The other bridges had given him no trouble. There was no question in his mind as to when the Potawatomis were relieved of their lands and forcibly removed from the country, or when the camp of horse-thieves on Grape Island was broken up. There was a tale of another band of horse-thieves whose secret retreat was on an island in the middle of a big lake of soft muck several miles south of the river. The one route of access to it was a concealed sandbar known only to the outlaws. The unsavory crew collected their plunder on the island, where the pilfered beasts were cared for, and their markings changed with various dyes. In due time they smuggled them away in the darkness to distant markets. They once captured a too curious preacher, who was looking for his horse, and kept him in Durant's vial for several months. The expounder of the Gospels labored so faithfully in that seemingly hopeless vineyard that the blasé bandits were finally purified by the word of the Lord, gave up their dark practices, made restitution, and ever after lived model lives. There was a record of a mighty flood that drowned out everything and everybody, ran over the top of the bridge and carried part of it away, 
and following this were notations of approximate dates of sundry happenings when the gang of counterfeiters that dwelt in Pinkamink Marsh were caught and sent up, the year that Bill killed a blue goose on Boiler Slough, when the tornado blew all of the water out of the river at Oxbow Bend and left the channel bare for half an hour, and the year that 46,000 ratskins was took off Shelby Marsh. A page was devoted to a reign of terror that lasted several weeks in 1877, for five nights an awful roar had come out of Bull Snake Bayou. The mystery was never explained, but Bill thought that the noise had been produced by a whiffomatic or a hodad that had come down with the spring flood, lost its way, and was shedding horns or scales in the vine-clad thickets. The births, weddings, and deaths of all the old settlers were carefully recorded, and many of their exploits detailed at length. There was an account of the capture of Hank Butts in his illicit still by the revenue officers, the failure of the jury to convict, owing to the reputation of the culprit's two sons as dead shots, and the story of Hank's death in a feather bed with his boots on when he went to visit a city relative and blew out the gas a few months later. Bill's experience with the catamount was related with much detail. He had encountered it in the woods when he was young, and had spent two days and nights in a tree, living on crackers, plugged tobacco, and a bottle of sage tea that he fortunately happened to have with him. The animal's foot had been shattered by Bill's only bullet, and this prevented it from going into the foliage after him. The captive had chewed up over a pound of the plug and had carefully aimed the resulting juices at the baleful eyeballs that gleamed below him at night, hoping to blind his besieger. When the supply of his ammunition was exhausted, the animal's eyes were still bright, although Bill had scored many body hits and had decidedly changed the general color of his enemy. Hunger finally compelled the savage beast to beat a retreat, and the situation was relieved. The catamount had evidently increased in size with the succeeding years, for in the manuscript its estimated length had been twice corrected with a pen, the last figures being the highest. Bill added that he had killed this fierce and formidable animal later, and that its skin was taken east. Somewhere among the confused piles was the tale of the last voyage of the little stern-wheeler steamer Morning Star to the ferry, under command of Captain Sink. She had come up from the Illinois River, and the falling waters had left her stranded for a week on a sandbar. Her doughty commander paced the deck and blistered it with profanity. He swore by nine gods that he never again would go above Corkscrew Bend, that was so crooked that even the fish had sense enough to keep out of it. His vociferous impiety filtered intermittently through the green foliage that overhung the river, and desecrated the shadow-flecked aisles of the forest, until the Morning Star's sister boat, the Damfino, came wheezing upstream. The unfortunate craft was pulled off the bar and navigation officially ended. Reliable data was becoming scarce. Bill's recollections were getting hazy. 
The old settlers, whose memories could be relied upon, were dying off, and the mists were absorbing his ascertainable facts. But while life lasts, the chronicles will go on, for Bill's genius is not of the sort that admits defeat. There is much human history that might with profit be entombed in these humble archives, and its obscurity would be a blessing to those who made it. As the world grows older, it finds less to respect in the dusty tomes that are filled with the story of human folly, selfishness, and needless bloodshed. Bill and I were enjoying a quiet smoke on the store platform one July afternoon and discussing his historical labors. We're living in terrible times, and the things that's happening now mops everything else off in the map, he declared as he refilled his cob pipe. I see things in my paper every week that ought to be noted down in my history, but I'm pretty near eighty, and if I try to put them all in, I'll never get through. There's too damn much going on. They're ditching the river and hell's to pay up above. They're blastin' in the woods with Dinnymank, and some of them old codgers that lives in them shacks up above the English lake'll be blown to kingdom come if they don't watch out and duck. They better wake up and come downstream. Say, you see that damn cuss comin' over the bridge? That's Rath Hyatt, and I'm gonna jump him when he gets here. He lost my dog I let him take. That fellow's no good, and he's a rippin' for damnation. Muskrat Hyatt was a tall, raw-boned, keen-eyed, ne'er-do-well sort of fellow who had hunted and trapped on the river for many years. He lived in an old houseboat that had floated downstream during high water one spring and got wedged in among some big trees in the woods, about a half a mile above the bridge. He moved into it when the water subsided and found it an agreeable abode. I hope the owner never shows up, remarked Rat, after I knew him. I don't think I like him. If the water ever gets that high again and floats me off, I'm willing to go most anywheres in the old ark so long as she don't take a notion to go down and roost on the bridge with me. He greeted us with rather an embarrassed air as he came up, and the old man spent considerable time in attempting to extract some definite information about Spot. Rat was evasive and unsatisfactory. They ain't no more patheticer sight than to see some feller that sets and flaps his ears and can't answer nothing that's asked him without trying to chin about something else all the time, declared Bill. I don't care nothing about its being hot. I want to know where in hell my dog is. That dog of yours is all right, said Hyatt. I reckon he's off some chasing rabbits and you needn't do no worrying. If anybody stole him, you bet I'll get him and the scalp of the fellow with him. And if he ain't here tomorrow, I'll take a look around. A dog like that can't be kept hid long. And somebody else'll have seen him. He ain't no fool. And if he's shut up anywheres, you bet he'll come back when he gets out. Well, you see that he gets out, replied the old man with asperity. I'm done having heart disease every time I don't see that dog when I go to your place, and I want him back where he belongs. I didn't give him to you, and if you don't know where he is, you ain't fit to have charge of no animal. 
This ain't no small talk that I'm doing. It's the summing up of the court. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by Tom Hirsch.